DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lillis is also the author of Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. We continue our heartfelt reflection on the last retreat. And Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity has us at day five. I saw a great multitude which no man could number. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits upon the throne will dwell with them. They shall neither hunger nor thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to the fountains of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All these elect who have palms in their hands and who are wholly bathed in the great light of God have to pass through the great tribulation to know this sorrow immense as the sea of which the psalmist sang. Before contemplating with uncovered face the glory of God, they have shared in the annihilation of his Christ. Before being transformed from brightness to brightness in the image of the divine being, they have been conformed to the image of the word incarnate, the one crucified by love. We're at the retreat right now that is among my most favorite in all of mystical literature ever written. Other mystics probably do this, but she's the one I first discovered this kind of what the term they use in theology is eschatological. It means the end times. And there, there's something eschatological in the contemplation of Elizabeth of the Trinity. She takes us into the heavenly realms and she invites us to right now in this life right now in my prayer time realize that there's a great drama going on in the universe right now and we're just on the fringe of it and we don't see it some people would call this kind of apocalyptic apocalypse means veiled this passage from the apocalypse or from revelations is veiled from us we don't see this face to face 
but the church proposes it to us anyway. And that is the true thing that's going on right now isn't all the wild anxieties and tribulations that are going on in, in this world and and all the different debates and things that are being carried out in the public square or in the marketplace of ideas. The real drama of the world is going on around the throne of the Lamb. And the truth about the people who've put their lives on the line for the faith is revealed there. And their lives, their witnesses are not wasted. At the end of the day, what they have done for us and what they witness to is all that counts. And this is what Elizabeth of the Trinity is seeing. My mind's going back to the Easter vigil. Chris, at your Easter vigil, do people, do they get dressed in white robes after their baptism? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. So they're in white robes, and some parishes I hear give palm branches. We didn't do that, but all those images of palm branches and white robes, and the more important than the palm branches are the, the candles that are lit from the Easter candle after they make their profession of faith and they go on procession to be confirmed. All those images come from the book of Revelations. What we celebrate liturgically, Elizabeth is seen as part of our contemplative prayer, that contemplation opens us up to the same mystery. You know, what's interesting, Anthony, about this is that there are many who today in Catholic biblical scholarship, it's been broken open that we look at the book of Revelation in portions of it at least, as a liturgical book. And what's fascinating is that for Elizabeth of the Trinity, she probably did not have access to that type of biblical scholarship, but she just, in reading those scriptures and contemplating it, she could see it, even in her time. Does that make sense? It it does. And I think part of that is the gift of, of Blessed Elizabeth. You know, she was reading the scriptures even when she didn't have the whole Bible available to her. She had atomized verses that were listed out and you'd memorize individual verses. And so her knowledge of the scriptures comes from that, but also from attending to the readings during the liturgy. But she didn't have a Bible in front of her to be able to think about these passages the way we can. So there's some kind of remarkable grace going on with Elizabeth that she's able to put these things together, as you say. The other part of it, though, and it's a great theological truth, sacred doctrine, this doctrine means teaching, so the, the holy teaching of the church, what the church proposes to us, we receive by faith. We can't understand everything the church proposes. We need to believe what the church teaches us, and this is Elizabeth, when she's writing, she's choosing to believe what the church proposes, and the church proposes that this in the book of Revelations, this is going on right now while we're talking to it. This is the real reality that's going on, even though all these other things in our lives seem so very important. And so she makes the decision of faith to believe in it and to take it seriously. This is the beautiful thing about sacred doctrine. St. Thomas, reflecting on this very same reality, he says that we in this life, the church in this world, we do not know the principles of sacred doctrine. We, we accept them, but we don't understand them. Uh, we, uh, we can't demonstrate them. That doesn't mean that what is proposed in the teachings of the church in the Bible isn't understood by someone. And he says, God certainly understands it, and the saints understand that. And so when we say yes to the teaching of the church, 
we're in a certain way participating in the beatific vision. And so, and we can do this by studying theology and reading the scriptures, but we can also do this in an even more remarkable way through contemplation. And that's what Elizabeth of the Trinity is pointing to. She's saying that when we lift up our hearts to behold in faith the mystery that the Lord reveals to us in the sacred scriptures, our hearts are availed to a mystery that the saints clear, see clearly face to face but that we get to know right here and right now by faith. And that mystery is so powerful, it can begin to unfold its reality in our lives so that our our lives become transformed. And in some way, we right now in our lives right here begin to anticipate the life of the blessed in heaven. So just as they were faithful to the end in their witness, and now their robes that were red with their blood, the blood of their witness, have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, So, too, we who suffer for the love of God in our daily lives, whether in difficult family relationships or difficult work situations or whatever our lot may be, if we're faithful to witness to Christ, even though what we're asked to do may be very crucifying, if we do it with love, the truth, the glory, the beauty of love uh, shines out on the earth and And just like we prayed at the Easter Vigil, you know, this is the night when heaven and earth embrace. And by contemplative prayer, when we let the power of God in us, heaven shines through in this world. And it gives gives a word of hope to people who otherwise wouldn't have any. So her vision then is a vision of heaven not as something distant and esoteric, but it's a heaven that is crashing into our reality, to our space and time right now that a Carmelite nun who barely had access to the scriptures at all should see these sorts of things is remarkable, but that she should see them and realize their implications in such ways that it can speak to us right here and right now, that just points to a a work of profound grace. The last point I want to make in this is, notice you see this reality, you see what the saints see, but you see it by faith, and as you see you like them, you become like them. And what are they like? They are conformed to the image of Christ crucified, the one crucified by love. And so Christian contemplation is transformative. It makes us more and more Christ-like. It helps us enter into the suffering mystery of Christ so that we may be raised up with him in glory. It certainly does. Where else does she take us on this fifth day? The soul that wants to serve God day and night in his temple, I mean this inner sanctuary of which St. Paul speaks when he says, the temple of God is holy and you are that temple. This soul must be resolved to share fully in its master's passion. It is one of the redeemed who in its turn must redeem other souls and for that reason it will sing on its lyre I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. With Christ I am nailed to the cross. And again, I suffer in my body what is lacking in the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The queen stood at your right hand. Such is the attitude of this soul. She walks the way of Calvary at the right of her crucified, annihilated 
humiliated king, yet always so strong, so calm, so full of majesty as he goes to his passion to make the glory of his grace blaze forth, according to that so strong expression of St. Paul. He wants to associate his bride in his work of redemption, and this sorrowful way which she follows seems like the path of beatitude to her, not only because it leads there, but also because her holy master makes her realize that she must go beyond the bitterness and suffering to find in it, as he did, her rest. So now we're getting into some kind of heavy-duty stuff. This last expression, how do we find in suffering our rest? This seems to be an impossibility. How do you suffer in a peaceful manner when all the world is torn up around you? And yet this is what Elizabeth is saying that Jesus wants to do. And one of the beautiful things in this is he is accomplishing this the more and more each of us becomes kind of living icons of the church. We, the church is the bride of Christ, and a bride wants everything the bridegroom wants, and wants to share everything with him. And so and that gives us the key. The key to finding our rest and suffering is to be filled with love for Jesus. With love of Jesus, we can rest in anything. Without love for Jesus, whether we suffer enough or not, we have rest in nothing. And that's the mystery I think she's pointing to. Mm. Let's go on to the next section of this fifth day. Sure. Then she can serve God day and night in his temple. Neither trials from without nor from within can make her leave the holy fortress in which the master has enclosed her. She no longer feels hunger or thirst, for in spite of her consuming desire for beatitude, she is satisfied by this food which was her master's, the will of the Father. She no longer feels the heat of the sun, that is, she no longer suffers from suffering. Then the Lamb can lead her to the fountains of life, where he wills as he wills, for she does not look at the paths on which she is walking, she simply gazes at the shepherd who is leading her. God bends lovingly over this soul, his adopted daughter, who is so conformed to the image of his son, the firstborn among all creatures, and recognizes her as one of those whom he has predestined, called, justified. And his fatherly heart thrills as he thinks of consummating his work, that is, of glorifying her by bringing her into his kingdom, there to sing for ages unending the praise of his glory. This is so powerful. Elizabeth is writing this as she is dying. And so this paragraph is so autobiographical. She is talking about her own suffering now. And her own suffering, and we've reflected on this before, she can barely breathe. She's really, for all practical purposes, starving to 
death. There's no way to really nourish her or even properly hydrate her because of the advanced stages of Addison disease, which she's suffering from right now. She probably has something like shingles right now. It just makes your whole body rack in pain. So she can't sleep. She's sleep deprived. She's dehydrated. She's hungry. Her body won't let her metabolize food. She's exhausted. In the midst of all these physical trials, she's telling us she has peace. And if we add on top of that, the other things that are going on right now, the, the state of France is about to evict the monastery, the nuns from their monastery. And she's heard the talk about, and she knows the history of France up until then, where priests and religious have been killed and martyred. She's suffering in deep anguish, and her community's having to take care of her. And she's aware the whole time that their whole way of life and everything they've known up till now could be taken away from them any moment. So think about all the external trial. Uh, she has physical trials. She has these external trials going on. And then there's internal trials that we don't know about, but we know that they were so severe that she was tempted, as was Therese of Lisieux, she was tempted with suicidal thoughts at times. So tremendous internal trials, tremendous external trials, and yet in the midst of it all, the trials are not the surprising thing about the Christian life. What's surprising is she's saying in the midst of all this, she also has peace. But what is her peace in? Her peace is in following Jesus all the way. And as she follows Jesus all the way, those who prayerfully read this text, she is becoming more and more Eucharistic. She becomes an offering to the Father, just like Jesus offered himself on the cross, just like Jesus, that offering on the cross is renewed for us every day at the Eucharist. In this passage, we're getting hints where she sees herself, the Eucharistic mystery of Christ, who offered himself on the cross for us, is being extended into her life. And think about it, when we receive the Eucharist, we participate in the life of Christ, we share in his self-offering, we become part of who we are. And this is what she says she is realizing at this stage, at this moment in her life. And she's saying, this is what we all must fall into. This is the grace of following Jesus. It's not something to be scared of. It's not something to lose our courage over. It's not something to try to resist. It's something to accept out of love for him, because when we do, it makes life full. We can live life all the way. And so the fullness of life then requires a radical trust that everything the Lord lets happen to us, he is working through in a mysterious way. If we do trust him in the face of that, then no matter what happens, we can approach it with this kind of peace of the bride that she's speaking of. On the surface, we can get very rocked and we can get upset and we can you know, want to throw it all away. But in the depths, the core of our soul that we live out of, we're walking firmly with Jesus. We're following the footsteps of our crucified master. Anthony, she is someone who is in a contemplative state. She's an enclosed religious who has the ability to be able to enter into this mystery in, in a very profound way. Is it possible for those who are not in that same state to experience the same type of depth of an awareness that Elizabeth is now? I think so. 
I think that it is normally the will of the Lord that we enter into this mystery. Now, we don't always enter into it in such a way that we can talk about it as beautifully as she is. Sometimes uh, all we're able to do is a simple surrender of heart because we don't understand what's going on in the midst of it and while it's unfolding around us. And if we got to study Elizabeth's life a little bit more in-depthly, we'll see that she didn't always understand everything that God was doing while she was sick and dying. Not everything he did made sense to her. It's not in being able to make sense out of it or understand it that our peace is rooted. Our peace is rooted in the fact that we know that God never leaves us and that his love for us is more true and more unchangeable than anything else in this world. Even our suffering and our seeming failures, his love for us is more defining, the defining element of our existence. And how do you know that? She's saying you choose to believe it. This being said, I think one of the great tasks today is to avail ourselves, make ourselves vulnerable to this mystery. We render ourselves vulnerable to this mystery when we say no to surface things. Surface things come in the form of entertainment. One of the things that distresses me is typically when I walk into a hospital or a nursing home or some other place where people are very, very sick, the TV is always on very loud. It's an environment that is so inhospitable to prayer. One of the things, if we have somebody in our home who's very, very sick or, or dying or in hospice, one of the things we'll, we'll want to think about is how can we make a prayerful environment for them so that they can make the movement of faith they need to make at this, their finest moment of life, their supreme moment of life is here. And, and so we need to, rather than fill our houses with all kinds of distracting noise and, frankly, uh, unedifying forms of entertainment, we need to find ways to open up our homes and and our places where we're caring for the sick to the loving presence of God. How can we make these prayer places more places of a prayer where people will be disposed to seek the living God whom they need so much at this moment? Just like that is true when we're sick and under distress, we need to really monitor the kinds of media we use, the kinds of entertainment we engage, and we need to evaluate it from the standpoint of, is this helping me discover the will of the Father for my life right now, or is this distracting me from the will of the Father? And if anything is distracting us from the will of the Father, it will rob us of the peace we need. So we should say no to it. That doesn't mean there aren't entertaining things that help us enjoy the Father's will, help us find the Father's will. But I would propose also, though, that there are a good many things in our lives that are just simply distractions that rob us of peace especially when we need peace most. In closing on this fifth day, any final thoughts, Anthony? Well, probably this. This fifth day began with a reflection on the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and that the lamb is our shepherd, and that the lamb is the object of our worship. And what is it about the lamb that so captured her? The lamb, of course, is Jesus, but... This image of Jesus, the lamb is the one who is offered to God. He is the perfect sacrifice. And so this contemplation that she has invited us to share today, this eschatological, apocalyptic contemplation, the object of it 
is the perfect sacrifice. And as we turn our minds to the perfect sacrifice, to the blood of the Lamb that was poured out for us that purifies us, that blood transforms us. It becomes our life and it makes us into a living sacrifice. St. Paul said, do not conform yourselves to this world, but be transformed. Offering your body has a living sacrifice, your spiritual worship. Elizabeth here is saying the renewal of our minds by which we can offer our whole bodies, our whole existence, our whole lives as a living sacrifice. We are moved to be able to do this. We are open to be able to do this. We are rendered vulnerable to be able to do this. When we think about Jesus, the Lamb who was shed for us, and the great price he paid for us, and the love he revealed to us, when we see that love, when we let that love wash through our hearts, that love can change us so that even though it's hard and difficult and seemingly impossible to do the loving thing, when we look to the Lamb, he gives us everything we need to make that movement of love, that movement of faith, that movement of trust, to have hope when it seems impossible. Jesus, our lamb, is enough for us. His blood is everything we need. I saw a great multitude which no man could number. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits upon the throne will dwell with them. They shall neither hunger nor thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to the fountains of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All these elect who have palms in their hands and who are wholly bathed in the great light of God have to pass through the great tribulation to know this sorrow immense as the sea of which the psalmist sang. Before contemplating with uncovered face the glory of God, they have shared in the annihilation of his Christ. Before being transformed from brightness to brightness in the image of the divine being, they have been conformed to the image of the Word incarnate, the one crucified by love. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Wallace.